0: Hello and welcome to a new season of Veritalk, podcasting the life of the mind from the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. I'm Nick Nardini, and I'm a graduate student in English. And I'm Noam Previs, a graduate student in chemistry. Laura Janti, our previous science host, has graduated and left us to work at CERN in Geneva. We're delighted to have Noam with us as our new resident science expert. Excited to be here. So today we'll be talking with a graduate student from Harvard's Department of Molecular and Cellular Biology about a new tool revolutionizing the field of gene therapy. Ready to start now? Let's go. In 1987, researchers identified a strange repeating sequence in the DNA of bacteria. It was only in 2005 that biologists realized that those sequences served as an immune system for that bacteria. They named it CRISPR. Last year, it was discovered that the same system could be used to manipulate the genomes of potentially any organism. Since then, work on CRISPR has flooded the literature and sparked the imaginations of biologists and medical researchers. Our guest today is Patrick Shu, a PhD candidate in molecular and cellular biology who is at the forefront of the burgeoning CRISPR field. Patrick, welcome to Veritalk. Thanks for having me. So Patrick, you've devoted the past year of your PhD work to studying this thing, CRISPR. Right. What, what is CRISPR and, and where does it come from?
1: A lot of the basic parts of CRISPR were originally discovered by food scientists who were studying yogurt cultures. And what they found was that in the genomes of these bacteria, they actually had pieces of viral genomes, and that, so that was just a really strange pattern that they couldn't quite figure out. And it turns out CRISPR is this adaptive immune system found in these bacteria that's responsible for basically snipping out pieces of the viral genome and putting it into the bacterial one. To what end? It does this uh, as a fingerprinting technique, essentially, to use this little piece of the viral genome as a fingerprint for doing later search and destroy mechanisms upon repeated infection.
2: So the bacteria, in order to protect themselves from viruses, take the information from the virus and use it to attack the virus the next time they're infected.
0: Exactly. If I could step in for just a second as the ignorant humanist. So, <laughs> so scientific laymen like myself, I think, tend to lump pathogens like bacteria and viruses together um, as just things that are out to get us humans, right? But it turns out that viruses are actually infecting bacteria?
1: Yeah, that's right. Think about it from the bacterial perspective. Actually, everyone else is out to get them.
0: Hmm. And so one way that these bacteria have found to protect themselves from the viruses is to absorb some of those viruses' DNA and then use it to, to do what exactly?
1: No, that's absolutely how it works. Um, essentially, it uh, has this uh, CRISPR genome, essentially, its own little piece of its world. Mm-hmm. And it takes the viral, the foreign viral DNA, puts it into its own locus, its own genetic uh, sequence, mm-hmm. and basically uses that as its uh, search-and-destroy mechanism. So basically, it can match the viral genome that it snips and puts it into its own CRISPR genome to find the phage later in life.
0: Ah, so this strand of viral DNA incorporated into the bacteria DNA allows the bacteria, uh, when encountering a virus, to identify it as a certain type of virus. Exactly.
2: Serving almost as like a memory. That's right, yeah, an
1: immune memory, if you will. And the adaptive part of it comes from if it's infected by many different kinds of viruses. So it can take a piece of virus A, piece of virus B, and a piece of virus C, and use all of those pieces to fight against multiple viruses at once.
0: Mm. And so CRISPR is the name that we've given to these absorbed viral DNA strands found in bacteria?
1: For this particular system, yes.
0: And, and so CRISPR is an acronym, right? C-R-I-S-P-R? That's right. And it, what does it stand for? It
1: stands for a Clustered Regularly Interspaced palindromic repeats. The name the name is very complicated, but it's, it's very simple, right? It, it points to these palindromic repeats that interspace these pieces of the viral genome. And the, the key, uh, key behind that is that CRISPR needs to process the pieces of the viral genome to use it as the fingerprint mechanism, right? But it needs to distinguish the piece of the viral genome in its own CRISPR genome from the one in the virus itself. And these palindromic repeats are what it allows it to distinguish between
2: self and non-self. Why is it important that it distinguish between self and non-self?
1: Well, clearly, if it can't tell between the virus and itself, if it starts to cut its own genome, the cell will probably
0: die. Okay, so this is an interesting discovery made, you said, by food scientists investigating the bacteria in, in yogurt?
1: That's right, and...
0: So it's fascinating, but it's not immediately clear, at least to me, what the application of this would be to genetic engineering. So where did scientists go from there?
1: So the key insight was that you could actually take the minimal components of the CRISPR system and port it to different organisms. And so you could orthologously express them, basically take these bacterial proteins and associated elements, stick them into human cells, and actually design them and program them, program CRISPR to cut any DNA sequence of choice.
0: So the same mechanism that is allowing these bacteria to cut snippets of viral DNA and incorporate it into their own could be used to cut snippets of any DNA that we want and incorporate it into, say, human DNA?
1: Right, so the exciting part is that these basic mechanisms that allow CRISPR to work, somehow allow it to still work in human cells. And the point being that instead of putting in a piece of the viral genome into the CRISPR genome, you could put actually some other sequence. So you could essentially trick CRISPR to instead of loading a piece of the viral genome to load something that you designed
2: yourself. What's the advantage of CRISPR over previous genome engineering technologies?
1: So there, uh, there are other genome engineering technologies that have been used in the past two decades or so. One of them is called, you know, these zinc finger proteins, and the others are called tail proteins, or transcriptional activator-like effectors. And the main difference was that these older, if you will, technologies, although they're, they're really not that old, tails came out maybe in 9. <laughs> To well, it's, obsolescence, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's true. No, the genome engineering is such a fast-paced field. The difference was that these are uh, proteins that bind to DNA um, through these protein-DNA interactions, whereas CRISPR is guided by these uh, viral genome snippets that it converts into RNA and uses this as an RNA guide. And so the initial excitement around CRISPR was that, A, you wouldn't have to build a huge protein to recognize your DNA sequence of choice, but rather you could simply switch out this RNA guide, which is just infinitely easier to
2: do. So besides convenience of switching uh, from proteins to RNA, are there any other advantages of CRISPR? Yeah, absolutely. So the problem
1: with these proteins, though, is that also that they're so large. By comparison, these RNAs are much smaller, so that you could uh, have this idea where you have one cell and deliver CRISPR with multiple RNAs at once, allowing it to target multiple sequences, which allows you to engineer a cell not just at one site, but at multiple sites.
2: Genome engineering is a field that's been around for decades now. Um, How do we see CRISPR uh, affecting the future of this field?
1: Right. So... I want to stress first that I'm talking about eukaryotic genome engineering and, in particular, its applications in mammalian cells. So there actually are all sorts of techniques out there already to engineer prokaryotes and bacteria themselves. But in in engineering human cells, for example, our repertoire of tools available to us is much more limited. And so CRISPR has been really exciting because it's really allowing us to push the forefront of this field. Now you might ask yourself, why CRISPR, right? What's the point of you know, cutting your DNA? And the point is that by cutting the DNA of your cell, the cell will go through this uh, damage response and try to repair and stitch its DNA back together. And in doing so, this will allow you to trick the cell and introduce a different sequence, a sequence that you've designed.
0: So, what's the current state of CRISPR use? Have we started selecting snippets of DNA to I- insert into eukaryote DNA?
1: Right, so that absolutely already works. Mm-hmm. Um, CRISPR has been demonstrated to work in human cells, and it's been used to make transgenic animals model organisms as well. What are from, some examples? So, from, uh, from rats to mice to zebrafish, the Drosophila fruit fly, or the C. elegans roundworm. And there are people who will be trying it with, you know, large organisms from pigs to monkeys.
0: And what have we done so far? What sort of DNA have we inserted into, say, the zebrafish?
1: So, so far, because CRISPR is actually only nine months old so far since its reconstitution into different kinds of uh, species, um, researchers have been focused on doing what are called proof of concepts, showing that it works in their particular model organism. And from here on, we're going to be trying to actually engineer the systems for our own particular purposes. And this will be broadly applicable for applications across benchtop basic research to biotechnology to medicine.
2: Mm -hmm. Have there been any proposals for ways to use CRISPR to engineer disease in human cells?
1: Yeah, so that touches on this field of medical therapeutics called gene therapy, which is this idea where you can basically correct a diseased copy of a gene with a correct copy. So if a gene is mutated, you'll have a mutated protein which won't function properly, and this can lead to all sorts of uh, problems such as disease. Mm -hmm. And by correcting that protein, you could restore its proper function and potentially treat or cure that disease.
0: That's very interesting. So I was perhaps thinking too ambitiously that CRISPR would immediately be used to alter the the genes of, of organisms, but the first applications are, you're saying, more likely to be actually restorative, just repairing genes back to their original state, from back from disease mutations?
1: Yeah, so actually one of the big challenges for medical applications is the specificity of these technologies, right? And so you might, kind of, you might imagine that if CRISPR doesn't cut just where you design it to, but also elsewhere in the genome, that can be obviously deleterious. Mm-hmm. And so this actually happened in the, early, in, the, in the mid-90s when people tried to use these lentiviral, these doped HIV viruses to try to deliver these uh, genetic payloads into patients. Mm. And what they found was that because this virus would randomly deliver its payload to places throughout the cell and just stud it throughout the genome, it could put this next to these proto-oncogenes, which are involved in cancer, and activate them.
0: So they could actually activate cancer in the in the test case. Right,
1: and so that's why the specificity and the sort of this new breed of tools such as CRISPR, mm-hmm. which promises to make modifications in a much more targeted fashion, has really been so exciting.
2: So what's been done in terms of making CRISPR better at targeting specific places? Is
1: so th- that So that's a lot of the work that I've been working on recently to characterize where CRISPR in human cells can cut other places in the DNA and also try to develop strategies to make CRISPR better. And one of the main ideas that we had was to basically require two CRISPRs to cut at the same site. And so by using two RNA guides instead of one, you could increase the length of DNA sequence that this complex had to recognize.
0: So, after all the innovations that CRISPR is introducing to the field, how far out do you think we are from actual genetic manipulation of the, huma, of the human genome?
1: Oh, so, actual genetic manipulation of the human genome has already been shown. It's already been published. And I think moving on from here, the the real question is what is limited by your imagination and by your engineering ability?
0: And hopefully by, by maybe ethics too, right? So I don't know if you've read this
1: this recent novel by Dan Brown called Inferno, but you know, spoiler alert. the plot the the villain, the plot device is genetic engineering. Mm-hmm. And it's this uh, eccentric Swiss billionaire and biotechnology genius who uses genome engineering to try to solve a big human problem over population. And so he had this incredibly <laughs> diabolic scheme where he releases these engineering viruses through throughout the through, the through the air actually to infect the entire human population and turn a certain subset
0: of humans infertile. So CRISPR is gonna make diabolical acts like that much easier, right? <laughs> so the the funny
1: part is that he manages to solve in this book at least several problems that we you know us scientists face every day, mm-hmm. from specificity to efficient delivery
0: so, so Patrick, obviously <laughs> you're not a diabolical evil genius, right? You are a scientist working on exactly those That's tough right. problems. You're trying to make you know, basic gene therapy possible. But I am curious to know what you think the future of the field is going to be. What do you think some of the potential for gene therapy is and, and what do you think some <clears> of the <throat> potential dangers are? So people have
1: actually used these earlier generations of genome engineering technologies in the clinic. So they're in clinical trials already. So there are these zinc finger nucleases that are are being used by this company to try to target the CCR5 receptor, which governs HIV infection of your cells. The idea by knocking out these receptors, you could abolish uh, actually HIV infection. And so these are the kinds of efforts that people are trying. One proof of concept done in mice was to try to treat hemophilia, which is this disease characterized by uncontrollable bleeding. And this is because you have these uh, these blood clotting factors that are improperly produced by your liver. So by correcting these mutations in these blood clotting factors, scientists actually over at Harvard Medical School were able to Try uh, try to improve the clotting of the, of these mice of uh, these of this mouse blood.
0: And what kind of success did they have?
1: And, 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 I mean, basically, they found that the mice had uh, had faster blood clotting, so this was able to treat some of the symptoms
2: of this hemophilia. So even though the potential for uh, ethically dubious applications exists, uh, the potential for health benefits clearly outweighs that.
1: Yeah, and that's really where we're trying to go with this, to try to have benefits for human health. I think the really exciting thing that we can do with CRISPR is to investigate genes, or rather diseases that are not due to just one gene, but due to many genes, such as these really complicated kinds of neuropsychiatric disease, such as autism. So autism is a spectrum disorder, Mm -hmm. and it's due to the mutation of many genes and many kinds of risk factors that add up in these really hard to understand ways. Mm. And by understanding how these particular mutations eventually contribute to uh, these uh, mental challenges, we can start to understand some of the underpinnings of the brain.
2: Mm.
0: So CRISPR is going to allow for much more precise and much more complex genetic engineering.
1: That's the hope, yes.
0: Great. Patrick, let's hear a little bit about yourself. How did you get into biology, and how did you find your way to CRISPR as a research project?
1: So that's actually a funny question. I actually come from a classics background, actually, in the humanities. Mm. And I started doing biology seriously in late in high school and, and early in college um, because I was pr- uh, pursuing these independent research projects and and actually in the inner ear at mm-hmm. Stanford. And we were studying how the sort of molecular properties of these hair cells in your inner ear were able to mediate hearing and I wanted to move on from studying the peripheral nervous system to looking at questions central to the brain and in doing so we realized that there were actually really few tools that were able to allow us to dissect these really complicated brain functions Mm -hmm. and so over time I slowly moved into bioengineering and very robust kinds of technology development to develop tools to allow us to actually study questions that we weren't be able to do before. And that's how I found my current thesis lab, and that's how I'm working on CRISPR today.
0: That's really fascinating. So I think when we hear about tools like CRISPR, we tend to think forward. We think about what the implications are going to be for altering, you know, uh, the genetic code of humanity. But, but you got in it instead to study our existing human genome.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and potentially finding ways to improve to improve it.
0: So we're instituting a new feature on Veritalk where at the end of each episode we ask guests for a recommendation for our listeners. A a book, a movie, a television show, an activity, something that they've been enjoying recently that they'd like to share with our audience. So Patrick, what is your recommendation?
1: So actually one of the main things that keeps me sane outside of the lab is ballroom dancing. So I'd like to give a big shout out to the Harvard Ballroom Dance Team and all the great people in it who, you know, who keep me sane.
0: So what is it about ballroom dance that is especially sanity-preserving?
1: I think the th- main thing that really attracted it uh, tra- attracted me to it was that when I'm dancing, I don't think about my biology. <laughs> and that's because it actually has a lot of technical fineries, uh, technical niceties that are really attractive to, uh, to scientists or engineers. How did you get into ballroom dancing? So my first year here there were these posters all over campus that said, dance camp, uh, have you ever wanted to be a ballroom dancer? Do you like watching Disney? <laughs> and so I showed up to this dance camp, and you know, they, we have these professional coaches that were teaching us to dance, and then the rest was history.
0: So I've always wondered, what are the judging criteria for ballroom dance? How, how are you evaluated? So they evaluate you on a, on a combination of factors from simply
1: your musicality, how well do you dance and respond to the music, to your, to your steps, um, how technically careful did you make a particular figure, to just simply your energy as a couple, how you come together with your partner, as well as just, you know, how, how do you look as a person? Do you look confident on the floor? Do you look like you're enjoying yourself?
0: And do you have any particular special moves?
1: Oh, absolutely. What's your best? You'd have to come see that in person. Okay.
0: Well, Patrick Shu, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure.
0: And Noam, thank you for joining me on your first session of Fair Talk. Glad to be here. Thanks also to our producer, James Brandt, and our guardian protectors in the GSAS Office of Communications. Veritalk is made possible with help from the Harvard Media Production Center, and our theme music is by Domenico Vicinanza. We'd love to hear your comments or suggestions for future guests. You can reach us at veritalk at gmail.com or find us at facebook.com slash veritalk. From all of us at Veritalk, thanks for listening.